0: Hey everybody, Osha here. Thanks for downloading the podcast. If you're new, uh, thanks for coming. If you've downloaded heaps of podcasts, thanks for listening. By now you'll know that podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And I need to pay Andy Marr, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, who helped me make this show. And I couldn't do it without them. And they deserve money because they're professionals like you They deserve to be paid for the work they do. Now, to do that, you might hear me talk about an ad. You might be trying to hear me trying to sell you something. Or you might not, depending on what your algorithms are doing. So let's roll some dice. You'll either hear an ad or you won't. But if you do, thank you. You're really helping the show. And then we'll get on cracking with Maria Konnikova.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part—they're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty-five day returns on your next order. That's quince.com/upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
2: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: We're very good at being objective about other people. Um, When it comes to ourselves, we are absolutely terrible. What you find over and over is that once someone is in that state of fear it's antithetical to going through the logical decision process through the weighty analysis none of that matters and so instead people end up doing things like searching confirmation bias right searching for things that already confirm their existing opinion their existing point of view and they see it and they say oh see exactly that's right i told you and then they stop reading and they think that they're completely done. And they dismiss any evidence to the contrary. So something that to an outside observer is a red flag, you just rationalize it away. Once you have that initial emotion activated, you are no longer a dispassionate, objective observer.
0: That is author, writer, and poker champion, Maria Konnikova. And this is episode 380 of better than yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Oshi Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Uh, This is a podcast that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on this show today, or any episode of this show, will help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's all I'm here to try and do. I'm here twice a week. Mondays I'm here with a guest, Fridays I'm here with you. Episodes go back to 2013 with various different theme songs Uh, (laughs) that vary in metal to the the funk that you heard today. My name is Oshi Ginsberg. I'm a TV host, I'm an author. I'm a dad, I'm an acupuncture receiver, I'm a stepdad, I'm a bicycle rider, I'm a live streamer, twitch.tv slash I'm a cat in the hat reader and I'm a podcaster and I'm here with you and I'm grateful that you are here with me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for uh, your feedback about the Dave Sharma episode and the Thinking Fast and Slow episode. Think slower, dream of beautiful things. If you need me, it's real easy. Send or email at gmail.com is how to find me. There's a reason why i got today's guest on. We're kind of a bit inundated at the moment by messaging from all fronts, political messaging, uh, news messaging, certainly agendaed messaging from wherever we are. And I think it's, it's, it's pretty important to... In life, try and I'm not necessarily saying this is seeing patterns in things that aren't there. This is not pareidolia. This is not, I guess, seeing a pattern or an image of something like a face in a cloud, for example, or religious pareidolia, which is seeing Jesus in a piece of cheese toast or a tree trunk or something like that. It's not, you know, seeing things that aren't there. It is trying to be as much as you can. Try to see things for what they are. Try to be a little more like Neo in the Matrix. Try and see the code but not to the point where you're seeing things that don't exist, all right? So so there's a a fine line, but I think it's important. I think it's important to clock patterns of behavior. Like, for example, Davros – no, sorry, Davo. Davros is a baddie in Doctor Who. Davo is an interesting – pattern of behavior that exists in abusive relationships, particularly either emotionally abusive or domestic violence abusive relationships, or gaslighting even. And you see politicians do it all the time. It's deny, attack, reverse victim offender. So I didn't do that. How dare you accuse me of such a thing? You're always kind of this like that. What am I supposed to do when you're always coming at me, you know? And then you you're all upside down. Like it's important to recognize These things, So we can kind of get a sense of like, hang on, what's actually being communicated here? Like I said, once again, this is not pareidolia. We're not seeing things that aren't there. We're not trying to draw conclusions from little bits of information that don't exactly fit, but our brain piecing them together, like I said, like a picture of Jesus in some toast. No, this is actually trying to see actual patterns of messaging and go, ah, right, I see what's going on here. Okay. And then try to distill behind that what the true meaning is. And there's a lot going on particularly with the COVID uh, situation, particularly with the political upheaval in Australia at the moment, particularly with what's going on in the world. I think it's important to arm ourselves and be as educated as possible about the ways that people in power or people in positions of power, be they elected or not, like a corporation or a company, communicate in a way to manipulate people's behaviour or indeed get an outcome uh, that they're after. Uh, I'm I'm not saying that, you know, sometimes I... Me even having this conversation is is trying to push an outcome, you know. So there are levels of it again, but I think it's important, and that's how I kind of got fascinated in the work of Maria Konnikova. Maria Konnikova is an author. She has a PhD in psychology from Columbia University. She started working in magazines and online publications. She's written two New York Times best-selling books. She writes mostly about psychology and how psychology relates to real world situations. There's two books of hers that I'm 100% completely fascinated by. There is The Confidence Game, uh, why we fall for it every time, and The Biggest Bluff, how I learned to pay attention, master myself, and win. I got into The Confidence Game because I'm fascinated with the psychology of how people can get sucked in by scams, by cults, You know, clever people, can get taken for their life savings or find themselves living on a farm far away from anyone they ever knew or loved and having their life savings drained in the hope of some sort of weird comet bringing them salvation. And I'm also really interested in the decision making processes that humans undergo when they're trying to make decisions under pressure and particularly how these two things intersect. So, wonderfully, I just reached out to Maria on Twitter just saying, Look, I loved the book The Confidence Game, and I love The Biggest Bluff. We have an election coming up soon in Australia. This is Literally, I'm reading the tweet out. We have an election coming up soon in Australia, and I think there's a lot to be learned from where those two books intersect as far as political messaging is concerned. The the pattern of the con, because there is an actual rhythm and a pattern to it um, that con artists and, and grifters have, have worked out over time that if you say the right sort of things in the right order, you'll trigger enough reactions in someone um, that they suddenly will just do anything you tell them. And making really great decisions based on incomplete information, which is how she ended up becoming a poker champion. Because Maria was basically, she was trying to like write a book about how people make decisions. And she's like, what's the best model of human decision making? It's, it's text, no limit Texas holding poker because you're making decisions on incomplete information and you can go all in. You literally can go all in. You can put everything you've got at stake In a game. And in the course of learning how to play it, like when she started, she told the New York Times that she didn't know how many cards were in a deck. She hated casinos and she had zero interest in gambling and she she became a poker champion in doing so. Uh, I think she's still a professional poker player. She's incredibly clever and she's very, very good at what she does. She has won so many awards for her books. Like I said, she's a two-time New York Times bestseller. I highly recommend The Confidence Game and The Biggest Bluff. They're both out now. The Confidence Game really breaks down the pattern of how con artists work and the triggers that they press in their mark in order to get them to hand over the keys or the money or whatever it is. And The Biggest Bluff is goes really deep into decision-making and it is absolutely fascinating stuff. And I'm so grateful I got to talk to Maria because I think both of those things are really important to be super aware of, particularly when it comes to coming into an election and just being aware of what it is you're looking at. When you see you know, someone in an Australian flag face mask holding up a vaccine and telling you something, going like, okay, then hang on. Okay. I get what this, what's actually happening here and try to use some of that slow thinking we talked about the other day. Like I said, Not paradelia. We're not trying to see, you know, tigers in the clouds. They're not tigers. They're just clouds. They're just, you know, bunches of water vapor up in the sky flying by you. But your brain can make a complete picture out of incomplete information. So we're not doing that. We're just trying to see, uh, as best we can, the tools and techniques that people in positions of power use to communicate to us. That's all we're doing. Anyway, enjoy this conversation uh, hooked up over the interwebs with Maria Konnikova.
3: I love your plant and your guitar.
0: Well, thank you. I've only just moved back in here. My nephew was living with us, as happens. (laughs) He's like 19.
3: It's so funny that just completely my mental image when you said my my nephew was living with us was like, oh, a 10-year-old kid running around. And then you made the impression and I was like, oh, no, your nephew's older.
0: Yeah, he's 20. (laughs) Extraordinary kid, but he was living in this room and... So it was my office, and i, I moved up to the attic, and I've only just got back and so now we have we have a plant and it's a whole indoor horticultural situation here based upon plants <laughs> that respire differently because we are in the somewhat of a basement down here, so these plants actually exude a lot of oxygen. You've probably seen them they have a terrible name snake plant uh, it's also known as mother in law's tongue <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> They're kind of green and they look like that.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Well, congratulations on reclaiming your office, <laughs> it's wonderful. Lance and all.
0: Maria, I'm so grateful that we could speak today. Where in the world do we find you?
3: You find me in Vermont. This is not, in fact, Brooklyn, which is where I normally live, but I do not have exposed wood in Brooklyn.
0: All I know about Vermont is the man with the mittens comes from there.
3: This is true. This is true. <laughs> the man with the mittens does come from Vermont. <laughs>
0: What's it like in Vermont?
3: Well, um, I don't normally live here. Right now, it's very snowy and
0: cold. Oh, that's delightful!
3: It is. It's very. Be- it's beautiful.
0: Oh man, I'm so. Gr- I'm so grateful that I, I can speak with you because. Um, I've reached out to you after I read two of your books. I haven't got back in, I haven't gone back in time enough to read your your first book Mastermind, but um, that is definitely next on the list. but once I got through your third book, I was like, shit, I've got to get you on the show because I found there were so many intersections for me between the work that I was reading about in your books and so much of the political messaging not only that we've seen in America in the last six years, but more and more we see in my own country to the detriment of actual democracy. And I was hoping, and I've had other people come on the show and talk about vaccinations. I've had people come on the show and talk about cults. I've had people come on the show and, you know, talk about where those two things intersect. And mm-hmm. where your work, it was like, wow, well, what Maria's writing about is the stuff that starts it all. It's the communication that gets people hooked in to these Fanciful hopes that everything will be fine if only you. <laughs> and so I'm really grateful we could speak because um, that's kind of how I wanted to talk about things today.
3: That sounds great.
0: <laughs> so,
3: especially your, I can't replicate the sound effect, but it was lovely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, because even though it's American politics, it's just been so extraordinarily visible to everyone on the planet for the last six years. Let's, let's get some definitions in first. Okay, so you wrote the book, The Confidence Game, about getting conned and the beautiful stages of the con, and it really hurt me to read it, Maria, because I, have, I got done in a shell game.
3: Ah, uh, tell us. <laughs> I, I want to hear. I'm sure everyone wants to hear.
0: I got so done in a shell game, and as you in your book, as you went through the stages of the con, the put-up, the play, the rope the tail, the convince of the breakdown, the sand and the touch and then the blow off. I'm like, shit, that is exact. Because I was always wondering, like, how did I suddenly just lose 200 American dollars? What what just yeah. what just happened? I was in a market in the Middle East and there was a lot of hubbub going on, the smell of falafel in the air and I think I was holding a falafel in one hand and, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I was like, what's that over there? And in walks this kind of blonde-haired tourist, and there's all these people gathered around a bloke playing shells, with three shells with the ball under the shell. And I was like, oh, I've seen this in cartoons. Oh, and people are making, and I saw one guy make 100 bucks, like, whoa, How did he, he doubled his money. That's amazing. And then someone <laughs> didn't go so well, and another guy doubled his money. I'm like, oh, I figured it out now. This is amazing. And then I went next, and the person I was with was like, what are you doing? Don't put it down, bang, 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 gone. And when I read your book, I was like, oh, shit, the three people that went before me were all a part of the team.
3: They were. They were indeed. But you know what? To make you feel better, one of the people I interviewed for the book um, fell for the exact same thing, Three Card Monty, which is a version of the shell game. It's all the same thing, right? You've got three. You've got to find the one. And in the case of Three Card Monty, you have to follow the queen, in the case of the shell game, you have to figure out under what shell the hidden whatever it is, is located. And one of the people I interviewed for the book was at that time one of the senior editors at Scientific American, <laughs> uh, you know, a major publication of scientific fact, was um, studying for her Ph.D., an incredibly, incredibly intelligent woman. And she was just overwhelmed. She was in New York in the big city visiting her friend on Canal Street. It was all so big and bright. And she thought that she could win um, just like you. And it's so funny. Before you get into it, if you just hear about it, you think, who are these rubes? And you call them rubes. You think I I would never fall for something like that. How, How stupid do you have to be? And then if like me, you delve into that world and you interview people and you see kind of who it is, they're not rubes, they're not stupid. They're incredibly intelligent people and intelligence does not protect you. And skepticism does not protect you. The people who are running your shell game with your falafel in one hand and your money in the other, And your three-card Monty, they're very smart and they're very good at exploiting human psychology. And it's actually, to me, those are kind of the quintessential cons. Because in that small game, right, in that 10-minute game, you have all of the elements of long cons that take years. They're all there. It's just this brilliantly orchestrated theater. And they know how to press your buttons. They know how to make you think you can win. They know how to even exploit people who know the game. But there are people who know what three-card Monty is, what a shell game is. They've read my book, maybe. They know that this is a con and they think they can beat it. I've interviewed those
0: people too. <laughs> you studied psychology. You have a PhD in psychology. As you were going through there, when did you first start to get curious about the decision-making processes that went into cons and the decision-making processes that went into decision-making? Did that start when you were at uni? I think
3: that that's something that I've been interested in for long before I started studying psychology as such. I think I've just always been fascinated by human nature and by our minds and by how we think, how we make decisions. I think I've been more aware of the fact that there's a lot going on up there from a younger age than a lot of people because I had the experience of being an immigrant, of coming to a country where I did not speak the language, of finding myself in a situation where I couldn't communicate, where I didn't know what anyone else was saying, where the only way I could survive was by observing people closely and trying to mimic them and imitate them and try to figure out, okay, why do people like her? Why do people not like her? You know, what's going on? And I think having that experience and actually having to be a detective of sorts when I was a five-year-old child made me much more aware of the processes that are normally just hidden to us that we don't think twice about. I always thought twice about them. And so it was an interest that I had from a very early age.
0: We've got two kids, one's 17 and one's uh, (laughs) 17 months. I can only say that for like another three weeks. (laughs) and then I can never say that again (laughs) in my entire life. That's wonderful. It's so great. It's pretty great. (laughs) But watching the, the oldest one's a girl, the youngest one's a boy and watching him, uh, he's not very verbal as boys aren't at that age. Girls are, and it's you know tough for me to go. All oh, right, we really are Cro-Magnon a lot quick. You know, for a lot longer than females, our brains just different. <laughs> Watching him pick up with non-verbal stuff is amazing, and he's not aware that he's picking up with the non-verbal stuff. But you're you're saying that you you very deliberately had to go. Look, I'm, I'm white, which is a, a great benefit as an immigrant in America. Having I lived in uh, LA for ten years being a white immigrant is a lot easier. I'm a white immigrant here in Australia, so that's a lot easier, because I'm an immigrant, but I'm white, so no one sure. cares. But at the time, you were quite little, and so there's still the Cold War Russian thing is still quite a big yeah. deal. So you're also afraid to open your mouth. You're also afraid to speak, because shit, if they hear me go, you know, about like, I'm fucked.
4: Oh, for
3: sure. And, you know, I'm so glad that you raised that issue, because it's not something I talk about often, And not something that people actually realize was a thing, but I have vivid memories and they make me, I mean, they make me so angry to this day of going into stores with my mom who speaks wonderful English, but heavily accented, right? She's Russian. And back then it was even more accented. And being called like a dirty immigrant and a dirty Russian in Massachusetts, in the suburbs of Boston. (laughs) And having these like, oh, well, you immigrant, you always come in and blah, 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 blah. And I just, I have these memories that just, they hurt so much. And it really makes you realize that, yeah, I was scared of opening my mouth because I saw it's not one big happy family.
0: No, and speaking of immigrants, (laughs) this does lead me to, you know, let's talk a little bit about the political messaging that has been going quite vigorously in in America for the last six years, because that the way that plays into, I'll I'll get to the decision making stuff a little later on, but I, I think once I saw the formula and the way you broke down how a con works, and I saw, let's say, for example, Trump's Rants about uh, what's something easy, uh, the build the wall, the immigrant caravan. (laughs) That's a con. That's a big fuck off con. All right.
3: Oh, for sure. For sure.
0: People know that. People are aware of that narrative. But it was so perfectly as if he'd read your book and go, All right, this is what I'll say. So the first part of a con is, which you've got to find your mark, you've got to find the person you're going to con. Let's let's break it down a bit, particularly around that messaging there. When it comes to the mark of that political campaign, do you reckon it was deliberate? Do you reckon I went, right, these are the people we're going to go for?
3: I think that it was deliberate, but in a much less conscious way. Yeah. I don't think Trump has ever read my book. I don't <laughs> think he reads.
0: No, he doesn't. And,
3: and I think that a lot of the best con artists, it's not like they read a textbook on this is how you con. Yeah. It's something that, is intuitive and comes by feel and by experience and by having been a certain type of person in certain types of situations throughout their lifetime the
0: out of the deal maria Uh
3: uh-huh exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) and so i think that it wasn't a conscious choice of oh okay well let's look at the numbers let's look at the demographics these are the people i'm going to appeal to yeah it was a much more gut thing Hmm. you know let's appeal to real Americans and let's appeal to that instinct to like me. I think he's done that for his entire career. Mm. I mean, he is someone who has conned people throughout his career. Yeah, The book I wrote after the confidence game, the biggest bluff was about my foray into poker. One of the best businesses in the world is a casino. And as I got into poker, I realized just how amazing of a business the casino business is. Right? Like you're, you just print money. Yeah. Donald Trump bankrupted a casino. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> do you bankrupt yeah. a casino? I mean, how horrible of a businessman do you have to be? And yet, this was years, obviously, before anyone ever thought he had any political ambitions. And yet, he managed to create this mythos around himself time yeah. and time again and to convince people of his greatness and yeah. his. With everything. And so I think it's something that he just instinctively knows how to do and he knows who to appeal to and how to do it. And I think with the wall and with all of his political stuff, it was the same thing. Everyone underestimated him because they saw him and they saw an orange gorilla. And that was wrong. You know, they should have seen someone who's actually very savvy, very shrewd, very good at manipulating people and getting them to buy into his myth because all the evidence was already out there. Mm. If they don't want to look at it beforehand, they're not going to look at it now. One of the things you learn when you deal with con artists is that evidence does not matter. Facts do not matter. I can present you everything, but once you're in that stage, once you've been taken in by the con you're going to double down. You're going to dismiss everything I say. You're not going to listen to me.
0: I talk about Trump only because he's such a visible and he's like the Duplo Lego of political messaging. Like, <laughs> But he's certainly not the first to do it. He is basically no. a carbon copy of Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, if you have uh, any familiarity with his story and every other you know, strongman or to some degree despots or dictators throughout time. It's a really similar pattern and there's nothing new. He wasn't writing any new book. Goodness me, Make America Great Again was Reagan's thing. But we can certainly recognise in our own political leaders, particularly here in Australia, the elements, the elements of the messaging, the, okay, so here's the people I'm going to go after. I'm going to go after frightened suburban white people, okay, Mm -hmm. and, um, that's, you know, okay, these are the guys that are going to go, these are the guys and girls are going to go for, they've got two and a half kids, you know, they've got about 100, <laughs> they've got 150 spare. Poor ca- and
3: half kid, I always feel very bad for that half kid. I
0: always feel bad for the half kid, but they've got like 150 spare bucks a week, you know, once the groceries and everything are paid for. Okay. So what's a way to get them? And, you know, you mentioned this, uh, Like to talk about the, the quickest way to get someone's attention. It's hope or fear, isn't it?
3: For sure. And I think that Even underlying the fear is also hope, right? I think hope is the driving mechanism that either it's just hope all around or you get at them by fear, but they hope that you can take their fear away, that you can make it better, that you've got the solution. And the reason why I put those two together, that's underlying fear is hope as well, is that I do think that it's this kind of fundamental human optimism that the world is going to be better tomorrow than it was today, that things can get better for me personally, that I've deserved better, that I've earned better, that I can have a better outcome. And that's what people like Trump, that's what con artists Feed into And the fear is definitely real. There are many cons that operate on that basic emotion, but both of those things are coming from a very visceral, emotional, immediate response. And they work so well because it short circuits logic, it short circuits your ability to kind of rationally think through, wait, hold on a second, let me take a step back. What would actually be happening in the situation? What would the data show? You know, what should I? know? when you're in that moment where your emotions have been activated, you don't think two steps ahead. You just think, oh my God, I'm going to miss this wonderful opportunity or, oh my God, if I don't do this, my grandson is going to not be able to have his surgery. You know, my poor grandson is in the hospital and I need to wire money immediately and I'm not allowed to call anyone because otherwise he'll be arrested, right? It sounds ludicrous when you repeat it to someone else, but when it's happening to you and you're in the moment and then you're feeling those emotions, you don't do that calculus because what if you're wrong, right? What if you think it's a con and it's not, And that small kind of, what if I'm wrong, that overweighs everything else. Then I'll have all of this on my hands and on my conscience, all because I didn't trust and didn't act quickly enough. So let me just act quickly.
0: That's amazing because what you just described fits everything. It fits. We can't stop digging up coal because then your job is going to go. And then the other side is like, you can't vaccinate your kid because then your child will get sick. Or you've got to vote for this person because there's in Australia at least there's boatloads of illegals coming in, full of disease, to take your jobs and and you know violate your daughters.
3: In the United States too, yeah. you know boats and uh, caravans, caravans, and we've yeah. got we've got people marching up the roads. Yeah. But all
0: those things are terrifying. Immediately terrifying. Fuck! How am I going to pay yeah. the bills? Holy shit! I don't want my kid to get sick. Oh my god! I'm afraid for my daughter. Instantly, mm. I'm like, oh. I wasn't worried about this thing 13 seconds ago, but now my body has gone, boom, fight or flight, fear. How can I make this better? Next sentence says, but my party will guarantee that, you know, I will stop the boats. That's what the technique was in Australia. I will stop the boats. It was an ad on television. I will stop the boats. Oh, he's going to stop the boats. Okay, I'm fine. (laughs) And... What you alluded to before, which I also find very interesting and it leads into the book that you wrote, The Biggest Bluff, about decision making, we've now got that thing in our head But he'll stop the boats. And whatever evidence comes after that that goes, well, actually, are the boats a problem? Is it a problem if we let people in? These people are fleeing horrible conflict. They're trying to save their children. What happens then to our decision-making process as we're trying to deal with our own empathy and trying to deal with considering the other side of the argument?
3: Oh, it doesn't exist. You're talking about a decision process that has been completely short-circuited by that initial emotion. Those two things are so much at odds. It's difficult to intellectually understand it unless you've been in that situation. And even if you have, you still, when you're not in it, you're much more objective about other people. And you think, why didn't they go through that process? Why didn't they go through that logical reasoning? And you are judgmental about them in a way that you're not about yourself. And I always say that we're we're very good at being objective about other people. Um, when it comes to ourselves, we are absolutely terrible. And so what you find over and over is that once someone is in that state of fear, it's antithetical to going through the process you've just described, through the logical decision process, through the weighty analysis. None of that matters. And so instead, people end up doing things like searching confirmation bias, right? Searching for things that already confirm their existing opinion, their existing point of view. And they see it and they say, oh, see, exactly. That's right. I told you. And then they stop reading and they think that they're completely done. And they dismiss any evidence to the contrary. So something that to an outside observer is a red flag. Hey, you know what? Those boats never seem to be a problem. I mean, look at you know the last 20 years of our history. Has there been any problematic event tied to them? No, it doesn't seem like that. No. You look at that and you say, no, 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 that doesn't matter. That's bullshit. That's propaganda that's whatever it is you whatever you need to say to dismiss it you just rationalize it away once you have that initial emotion activated you stop analyzing data in the same way you stop looking at it in the same way you are no longer a dispassionate objective observer and people listening might think, yeah, that sounds right, but not about me, right? It's it's much easier to see that in the abstract, but you personally never have those sorts of shortcomings. You're very good at analyzing the data. And the reason you're so passionate is because the data support you. That's the reason we we go backwards, right? And, And instead, we Do a post hoc analysis where we say, Oh, well, the reason I'm feeling so emotional about this is because look at all the data. And they all say I should be so emotional about it. But that's not what happened. We got emotional first and then we picked the data that was going to support our point of view. That's why the best con artists are the ones who know this and who are able to get their victims immediately
0: involved on an emotional level. And that is either selling hope or fear, it's selling the the hope of uh, what's in the news today, buy GameStop. We're going to 10000 <laughs> It's going to be great. We're going to destroy the hedge funds. Yeah, there's a, You know, there's an element of truth to it, but I don't think I'll be investing today. Uh, um, you're immediately like, oh, my God, you've spent the money in your head already. And so when it comes to assessing if this is a good idea to invest in this, it doesn't matter, does it? Because you've already paid off the school fees and emptied the mortgage account and, <laughs> you know, you're already on holiday in Port Douglas. <laughs> and so when it comes to assessing it rationally, you just can't do it. But that, goes, that goes with so many things. It goes even in the, the smallest online purchase. We were scrolling through Instagram and a new top will show up and you're like, fuck, I really should buy that. But when you think, oh, my God, it's 180 bucks," that's a bit more expensive than I would like to pay today. Doesn't matter does it? You're rushing already on that initial decision, aren't you?
3: For sure. And um, I'm actually kind of glad you mentioned online ads, because if you look at the number of cons that are perpetrated every single year and where the largest numbers are, and I, I should caveat this with the fact that we don't have any accurate numbers for cons um, or anything resembling accuracy because the majority of cons are never reported because people are too embarrassed or they don't realize they've been conned. They think it was legitimate. So with that asterisk, out of the reported ones, the greatest number of cons are online and they happen to be consumer fraud um, for health products, for things that will make you thinner or healthier or live longer or smarter (laughs) brain supplements, all of these things. And they're brilliant. They're brilliant. And I mean, I am on a crusade against all of these things, but they're brilliant because they don't need to create hope or fear. They are building on the hopes and fears that are built into all of us. The fear of aging, the hope of being kind of the this beautiful version of ourselves that the media has put forward. And so they they don't even need to create the emotion. The emotion's there. All they have to do is press the button. And so those—that that is the number one leading fraud and con in the world. And it breaks my heart.
0: What you're describing, uh, it gets to me of like, hang on a second, if I'm hearing a political message or a sales message from someone and I immediately feel the, it takes being aware of your own body, if I'm immediately feeling the flood, as it's called, uh, if I'm feeling the heat in my pit of my stomach, if I'm feeling my heart race, if my fingers are shaking, I should be careful about whether I say yes to this or not because I'm now no longer making a good decision. I've been triggered here. What did you find out about? trying to intercept that, like say, for example, you're in a, in a poker tournament, you're at the final table, all right, which you've done a number of times, you're an exceptional poker player, I dare never come up against you. <laughs> say there's four of you at the table, and you flop pocket kings, all right, and you go, fuck yeah, here we go, I'm going to push this motherfucker right off this table, all <laughs> right, and the flop comes down, and <laughs> you're already, your heart's already beating through your chest, all right, how did you learn, and you clearly did learn, How did you learn to circumvent and stop that excitement, that hope of I'm going to take this final table, I'm already seeing the cash floating through the air as it flutters down (laughs) on me? How did you stop that emotional thing from taking you over as you then saw the next cards and go, how do I make a correct decision here based on not only the cards but what these other three people have been doing for the last three days? (laughs) How did you do that?
3: That is an excellent question and I think that, The true answer is I'm always working on it. It's not a magic thing where you do it and then hurrah, you will never ever experience those moments again. I think it's very hubristic to think that you could just cure it once and for all. But I think the key is to do the hard work and the heavy lifting ahead of time to recognize that those moments are going to happen. And that you will be in situations where you get emotional and where your heart starts racing and your pulse starts beating and all of these things start happening. And to figure out, okay... When I'm in that situation, what am I going to do? Because if you didn't do the hard work and the heavy lifting ahead of time, you are not going to be able to do it in the moment. You need to recognize that in the moment, you are going to be limited no matter who you are. You could be the greatest self-control guru in the world, but if you did not do that self-analysis and identify that possible situation ahead of time and figure out, how am I going to respond to it? The nature of these hot emotional situations is they're hot emotional situations. They are going to get you into a spot where you're not thinking rationally. And so what I ended up doing was, first of all, I had to overcome my misgivings about mental coaches and get one of my own. (laughs) So I, I always you know, thought I'm a psychologist. I've studied decision-making. I know all of these biases. I know all about it. I don't need a mental coach. And then obviously I realized, oops, I do need a mental coach because you can't do it all yourself. And then it was very funny because I really resisted what he asked me to do. He said, okay, you know, we would talk and I would go through a game and all of these situations and he'd make me identify all of these things. And then he said, you have to write this all down. He actually made me fill out spreadsheets where I would say, okay, I flop pocket kings, right? I, I describe the situation what do i do how, okay how am i going what am i going to do next time what am i going to say to myself how am i going to react what are the techniques i'm going to employ and at first i didn't do the stupid excel spreadsheet because that's okay. bs why in the world would i waste my time doing that i'm smart and i don't need it no i didn't need that because writing it down and going through that process actually forces you to think through things in a way that you wouldn't otherwise do. And I'm a writer. I write things down all the time. And still, I was resistant to this. And so by the time I get to that final table, and I'm in that situation, I've actually thought about what I was going to do. And I've actually already realized, okay, well, first of all, just general thing, I'm going to be standardizing all of my reactions in terms of how I handle the cards and what I do. And then when I'm in this type of situation, here's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to take three deep breaths. I'm going to think about you know, whatever it is I'm going to think about. I'm going to think about the clouds and the sky and pretend that I'm on a beach under the clouds and not at this table at all. Then I'm going to kind of go back And these are the elements that I'm going to analyze in the decision process. I'm going to think about who these opponents are and what they did. And I'm going to mentally check off. Did I think about this? Did I think about that? Did I think about the other thing? And then I'm going to act accordingly. And I'm going to be willing at any point to let go and to say, okay, you know what? This isn't a great situation. That's also very important. It's important not to get too committed or too emotionally invested in any course of action or decision ahead of time because you need to be willing to be flexible and to think, you know what, if the data no longer add up, I'm going to take those pocket kings and throw them into the muck. I'm going to, I'm going to fold. And that's not something that I was capable of doing early on. And it took all of that time. And sometimes, like I said, it's still, it's a work in progress. Sometimes you still find yourself unable to take a step back. But it's so important to think through that plan of action ahead of time. If I have a bad beat at the table and something terrible happens and I'm in a really bad state because I just lost a lot of chips, I might actually get up and walk around the room. And yeah, I might miss a few hands and I might look stupid, but I don't care because that's actually going to make me money because I know that for me personally, it's powerful to get out of the situation, to actually physically move away, and that I come back with a clear head and able to make good decisions. It's so important to recognize that in yourself. Sometimes I realize I'm making a stupid decision because I'm hungry. I haven't eaten since the morning, and that's making me anxious and impulsive. That's actually affecting my decision process. Holy shit, I need to pee, right? Right those types of things matter. They affect the way that you are deciding. And it's a constant process of mindfulness where you learn to pay attention to your body, to your thoughts, to your emotions, to what every single element of yourself is trying to tell you so that you can react to it, so that you can take it out of the decision process. It's so funny if I realize that I'm hungry, sometimes for some reason, you know, I don't have something that I can eat at that moment, realizing that is enough because then I can say, oh, I'm making this decision, not because I should be taking this risk, but because I'm hungry. Okay. Now I can subtract that and try to make a good decision all the same.
0: You mentioned two things there that I'm really a massive fan of, and it's, and I've spoken on this show about it before, it's thinking about what's going to happen in a hot state when you're in a cold state and giving your brain a f- instant fallback contingency because our brains like contingencies. That's what we like to do. When someone sneezes, yes. we know, oh, I say bless you. We like to know what to do. And if you haven't thought about it, if you're improvising in the moment, you're probably going to fuck up. You're probably going to make a bad choice based upon those emotional <laughs> reactions, right? But if you've gone through it beforehand, An example I like to bring up is um, talking to your kids about drugs. And we've got a teenager, we talk to our kids about drugs. I know you're going to roll your eyes when I tell you this, but what are you going to say when someone offers it to you? Get them to run through it. And then in the moment, their brain goes, before they've had a chance to go, oh, I want to try that, their brain's already gone, we know what to say. And it comes out their mouth before they've even had a chance to react. And it's a really interesting way to hack that part of our brain that just seems to be only like lizard-like, just reaction. I think that's
3: so important. And I think that bridges both what we were just talking about in terms of con artists and what we're currently talking about. Because one of the things that I suggest to people for how to not get conned is to run through exit scripts. Because I don't know, I've never lived in Australia. I've actually never been to Australia. But in the United States, a big problem is that people don't want to give offense in an interaction. We, we like to be liked. We want to be nice. And it's a big deal in a social interaction. And so people don't know how to say no because it's awkward, and so oftentimes people will fall into cons and into these t- sorts of situations because they don't have an exit strategy. They don't know how to get out of it. If they're feeling uncomfortable, they don't know how to extricate themselves from a conversation or from an interaction. And then before you know it, you're actually in it and you no longer have the brain power to say no. And so it, this is something that I learned from a woman who... Infiltrated cults for a long time to try to get people out. And she had to have an exit strategy before she went in and to figure out, okay, how am I going to get out? What am I going to do? How am I going to operate in all these contingencies? A much less extreme version of that is, okay, well, if someone offers you this great financial deal and you no longer are comfortable, how do you say no? How do you actually? get yourself out of the situation. What's the exact script that you use? Tell me, give me the words. How are you going to say it in a way that you're comfortable? And doing that in a low stakes situation helps you exit it in the moment where otherwise you wouldn't be able to. It's practicing those scripts. And the same is true of poker when you're not getting conned, but when you need to figure out, you know, what do I do here? If this, then what? If this happens, then what do I do? Then what do I say? Then how do I react? Let me act it out. Having those if-then scripts, having an exit strategy, and being willing to always deploy it, it's so powerful and it's so undervalued.
0: That's the other thing you mentioned is being willing to say, okay, I'm out. Okay, I'm out. Because we're pretty shit as humans. We're pretty <laughs> shit at understanding actual risk. All right. The actual risk of getting bitten by a shark is hundreds of thousands of times less. I think it's something to like next to you. I getting don't know. Elect- I've
3: heard that Australia has really bad shark attacks.
0: <laughs> Look, and I, I say it to everyone all the time, the news is the news. Like today, and maybe not, well, maybe today <sighs> locked, a lot of lockdowns are ended, but today in Australia, 4 million people will drive their car home safely. You'll hear about the two crashes. All right. But now cars are dangerous. Well, fucking, hang on, wait a second. No,
3: <laughs> no, cars are cars are fine, but trucks are fucking scary. So, yeah. so let's just get that straight.
0: <laughs> but it it appeals to your fear of being eaten, and now you're making an irrational you're making an irrational decision about the real yes. risk of jumping in the water. Um, you know, I'm we're,
3: helping you illustrate your point. Yeah, I'm being, I'm being a good
0: subject. Yeah, <laughs> but we're bring, we're pretty terrible at understanding. <laughs> we are. Actual, we're horrible at it. Actual. Uh, statistical risk factors. Why is that? What happened to our brain that we went 37% chance, that's close enough to 50-50, great.
3: No, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. And, And the human brain is awful at it. And by the human brain, I mean all human brains, including statisticians, including people who study risk for a living. It's a very, very different thing to study it in the laboratory or in your professional life and then to act on it in your personal life. That's because the way that our brains evolved, they didn't evolve to learn things like percentages and numbers and what that means. They evolved to learn from experience, from emotion, from everything you and I have been talking about, this visceral reaction. Did this happen to me? Did this happen to someone I'm related to? Did this happen to someone I know or not? If the answer is, yeah, it did, then we overweight that probability. We think, oh, this is dangerous. This is scary. This is terrible. If it didn't, we think, ah, oh, that's remote. It's never going to happen because there are two things that are happening there. One is what I call the description experience gap, right? We learn better from experience, our own experience, than from description, which is you saying, you know, 37% or 72% or whatever. And description is skewed. Description does not actually look like statistics. And so sometimes if someone you know was attacked by a shark, all of a sudden shark attacks happen all the time. It's a dangerous, dangerous place out there. Never go in the water. And when I describe it to you, when I say, well, actually the real risk is whatever the real risk is, I'm guessing it's less than 1%, you don't listen to that. You don't listen to that number at all. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is something that you alluded to when you say 37, close enough to 50. Our brains also don't like uncertainty and don't like to exist in these states of gray and shades of maybe, Instead, we want to be in absolutes. So we see 70% and we round it up to 100. We see 10% and we round it down to zero. And the best example I can give of something that we deal with on a daily basis where we do this is the weather. So imagine you bring an umbrella out because the weatherman or your weather app or whatever it was said that there was a 75% chance of rain and it doesn't rain. Well, don't you feel like a schmuck? And you're like, come on, it was supposed to rain. I dragged this umbrella around all day. Come on, what's with you? Or it says 10% chance of rain. You don't bring an umbrella, of course, and it rains. You're like, mother fucking up. I mean, what in the world? This is awful. Like, what what is this? You know, you you told me it wasn't gonna rain. No, it didn't. It said 10%. 10% isn't zero. It's like 75% isn't hundred. But In our minds, it is. It's the exact same thing. That's why when Trump won, people vilified (laughs) pundits like Nate Saar. They said, you got it so wrong. No, he didn't. He gave Trump the same chance of winning as you have a flopping a pair in No Limit Texas Holden when you play poker. (laughs) That happens all the time. It's the same percentage. When I saw that, I was like, oh, funny. But our brains don't like those nuances. Yeah, want to be told this is what is going to happen or this is what's not going to happen. So take those two things together, description experience gap plus our distrust of anything that's in the uncertain spectrum. And you just have a perfect storm for why we're just not capable of internalizing percentages for the most part.
0: One of the things that Maria talks about and I find quite fascinating is the psychology that goes on when someone gets sucked into a cult. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. Her work does touch on a little bit, but if you really want to deep dive into that, I highly recommend episode 281 of this show with Jo Thornley. She has a podcast called Zealot and a book of the same name called Zella and she and I just dove into how people get into cults, the pattern of behaviour that exists in recruiting people into cults and indeed the pattern of behaviour that keeps people in cults. Have a listen.
2: If for whatever reason someone said you can't use your phone anymore, I would panic a bit because that's how I stay in touch with the world. So if they said we're going to take it away or you can have it back but every two weeks we're going to slap you in the face... I guarantee you I would take that slap. They might go, OK, 12 days out of every fortnight you get your phone and it's a slap one week and a punch in the gut's the next. You would hesitate, but the alternative is not being connected to a group you need and you believe you couldn't live without. So if it's something that you've already connected to and then they add the garnish, they might increase the punishments and they make you fearful of what else there is... You can get hooked in. And we're already all, intelligent or not, hooked into some things where someone else could just tweak it a little bit and we would gradually go with the flow.
0: That is episode 281 of this show. Just scroll back in your podcast feed to find it. Hey, it's Danny
1: Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: Now we get into the murky world, Maria, of conspiracy theories and Jewish space lasers and all kinds of things that people 100% as real as the red glasses on my face believe are true. Now, once people start getting sucked into the, I don't want the world to be run by a cabal of evil people or I don't want my children to get sick because I vaccinate them, they won't, and the world is not run by a cabal of evil people. Um no. And no space lasers. No space lasers, or I don't want people coming on a boat to sexually violate my daughter. Uh, Nobody wants any of those things. They won't. I don't want climate change to be real. It is. It is. Once we start to not only get that hooked into our brain, but then start to have that as our identity, once we start to then associate with other people that validate that in Facebook groups, call it what it is, That exit strategy becomes even harder because now it's going against who I say I am. I know I'm a person that believes in my country and my country should be safe from people on boats and vaccination and climate or whatever the fuck. But now it's a part of who I am. So if you haven't had an exit strategy before that point, if there's someone that we love that's in that state, and there's plenty of people that I know personally that I love that are stuck in this place, what can we do about people who are in this, you mentioned perfect storm of decisions that have allowed them to get into the spot where they're stuck. They're like, I'm too afraid to say anything now because now if I say something, people will think I'm an idiot. Like, How can we help friends of ours that we love who are in that spot?
3: That is the question. And I wish I had a blanket answer to say, this is what you do. This is your game plan, because believe me, I'd give that away for free yeah. because I think that it's so incredibly important. The truth is there's no blanket answer. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, the answer is you can't after a certain point. But you can maximize your chances of success by learning from something that I mentioned earlier, um, which is victims of cults and people who've successfully been able to exfiltrate victims out of cults, which is really, really difficult. That's not just a belief about vaccinations it's taken over your entire life by that point once you've just shed everything and, and moved and I think the the key is to come from a place of compassion not of judgment and to try to speak the same language so the reason that you know I ended up working with people who were cult infiltrators who actually joined the cult themselves is because they realized that you couldn't work from the outside because you didn't understand the vocabulary. You didn't understand the worldview. You didn't understand the the place where they were coming from. And so they saw you as an outsider. But if you were able to use the right words, if you were able to use the right language, if you were able to come from a place with, oh, You know, I believe the same thing you do, but have you ever thought about this? You know, this doesn't seem to mesh with this thing that he just said. And to do it in that sort of more gentle way, that's much more effective. And that's not our initial instinct. It's so much easier to just dismiss people and judge them and yell at them and try to say, I can't believe you're doing this. This is so wrongheaded and terrible. Here's all the evidence why you're wrong. That doesn't work. I mean, throwing the evidence, throwing the facts, throwing the statistics that someone isn't going to work, it's just going to make them double down. It's going to make that cognitive dissonance rationalization process much stronger. They're going to come out of that interaction believing even more in whatever it was they believed in. And it's tough when it's something that really hits home for you to be compassionate and to try to come at it from a place of understanding. I'm not always successful at doing that, but that is what you should aim for if you actually want to try to get people to change their minds. You know, you keep mentioning vaccinations and that's a hot button issue for me as well. My sister is a neonatologist, so she deals with premature babies every single day and she has issues with, you know, insane parents who don't want to vaccinate and she sees the sickest children she sees the children who have all sorts of diseases who are born with all sorts of terrible things because their parents are anti-vaxxers and you should just get her started on that you're gonna leave that conversation heartbroken in tears because of tears number-
0: right now just even thinking about it
3: <laughs> and so and so oh. it's it just when i i get so i just i want to yell and shake people and be like do you understand what's happening do you understand what you're doing these helpless lives that they haven't done anything and you're doing this and you're they're dying because of you and so i try to take the hardest case which is something like that how do you talk to them and it's almost impossible i mean my sister tells me that The hardest part of her job, obviously the hardest part is having children die, but talking to the parents and having to battle the parents and having to go in day in and day out and do that makes you realize that when you see someone like me on a podcast, you know, preaching compassion, it's very different from being down there and actually Mm. dealing with this every single day and saying, you know, enough. Yeah. This is just, I don't have time for compassion. They need to either get the vaccination or, you know, like it, it, it's a very, very different situation. And I get that. Yeah. So, but it's, I still say it. I, I say yeah. it all the same because I yeah. think that it's it has the greatest chance of being effective. And at the end of the day, we're trying to change minds.
0: I know we're coming towards the end of our time, but there's going to be a federal election in our country this year. If you could have gone back pre-Trump, if you could have gone back before <laughs> that started, before the election started, back to 2014, <laughs> before the campaigning, and you could have done a PSA going, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to go in election season. I'm Ria Konnikova. I know about cons. I know about decision-making. I know about paying attention to your surroundings. Here's some things to keep in mind as the political messaging comes at you over the next few years. What would you tell people as all these ads and stuff start to come at us over the next few months? <laughs>
3: Oh boy, what a question. Number one, never say never. I think a lot of the reasons that Trump was able to get elected was that everyone discounted him. Never discount people like that. I mean, you've got, it's not just Trump. You've got Boris Johnson. You've got, I mean, you've got little Trumps all over the world. It's not just here, (laughs) unfortunately. So I would say it can Everything can happen. And so realize that, take things seriously, listen to people and actually try to figure out what they're saying. And one of the things that I would recommend is get off of social media actually and get off of those kinds of news cycles because they wrap you in a little bubble and you don't realize that you're in an echo chamber. I had a very surreal experience the night of the election. Um, When Trump got elected, I was doing commentary for Slate, the magazine. I do a podcast for them called Is That Bullshit? Where we talk about things and wonder if that's bullshit or not. And so I was one of the people doing election night commentary. And we had this big live show in Brooklyn with a big audience. And everyone was so excited because Hillary Clinton was going to win. And there I was actually on stage being like, no, actually, Trump has a really good shot of winning (laughs) because of all these things. And this was the beginning of the night and everyone thought that I was kind of the naysayer. And then the results started coming in and all of a sudden the mood changed. And then it just became, you know, a funeral from this lively party. And no one saw it coming because they didn't want to see it coming. And because we were all in this like little happy bubble of of course he can't win. So I think that, just trying to realize that your bubble is not reality and that when people are saying they have problems, you should listen and you should try to be compassionate. I mean, I was team Hillary all the way. And while I might have agreed with certain elements of the spirit, you know, calling things like baskets of deplorables is not a good way of getting people on your side, because that's the opposite of compassionate. That's kind of the the opposite of trying to not antagonize people right away and having them just shut down. So I think just being open to that and also trying to neutralize the threat ahead of time. I mean, Trump was would not have been a thing had the Republican Party not enabled him. And so I think it's not just Trump. It takes an army. It takes multiple people oh. being willing to look the other way, complicit. Don't get me started on politics in the United States. I mean, I think we need to abolish the electoral college. I think the two party system is fucked. I mean, I just think that our politics needs a massive overhaul from the ground up. Um, that's not what our podcast today is about, but <laughs> no, that's, that's like, what I would have been telling people in 2014. I wrote a paper in college about how we should abolish the electoral college. I've been yeah. I've been preaching this for a
2: while.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, as we mentioned before? What about when you know we see the ads and in our country we have two main parties. We have a, we have people form coalitions. We're based on the Westminster system, but it's mostly the Liberal Party. Anything but Liberal, they are the Conservative Party, and mm-hmm. the Labour Party, which is the you know the workers etc. they're supposed to be. And say the ad goes, Labor are going to take your pension fund, your superannuation, and they're going to take it off you. Don't let that happen. Come Saturday, vote Liberal. All right, that's about 15 words. Instantly, I'm terrified. When we hear those frightening political ads, what are some things we need to be mindful of inside our body to help our kind of understand well, 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 what's just happened to me? Am am I being conned here? How's my decision-making process being affected?
3: Well, I think you said the key word, mindful. I mean, if I were to give a country advice, if I were to give the the United States or Australia advice, I would say, okay, everyone needs to have a mindfulness practice. Everyone needs to just take some time, sit down with themselves and do a self-analysis. What are my hopes? What are my fears? What are my hot buttons? What are kind of, who am I, right? We don't do that normally we don't we don't take the time to do that and everyone should have a practice where they actually learn how to pay attention to themselves and to what their minds are saying what their bodies are saying and to learn to identify when they're being emotional and when they're being emotionally manipulated. I know when I'm being emotionally manipulated and sometimes it doesn't matter. And sometimes it takes me a while and I'll say or do things that I will later regret. But because I do try to be mindful and to understand that, I can then go back and say, you know, I'm sorry. But unfortunately, if you voted for someone or if you voted for Brexit and then the next day said, shit, I'm sorry, I didn't think that was actually going to pass, your shit, I'm sorry, is not going to do anything it already happened (laughs) so I think just taking that time and learning to be more aware of yourself and more aware how emotions affect you and of the fact that a campaign like the one you described I mean that's stoking my fear that's going straight for that and when a campaign does that instead of being afraid I should say what the hell why are you manipulating me What is the actual policy here? This is why I actually, and I don't think this is going to ever be viable, but since you're asking about politics, let me just take a few seconds to say, it's why I always say that we should actually just get rid of parties because they short circuit the thought process. You're like, oh, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative. This is what I'm supposed to believe. And you don't think the critical thinking doesn't actually happen. Instead, we should actually be forced to read through everyone's platform and to think through for ourselves, do I agree with this or not? And then make a decision because of that. No one does that.
0: at all, I think we will, but somewhere between what we've got now and what you just described is where I think we'll end up, whether it's in my lifetime, I don't know, but uh, I'd (laughs) like to see it. Maria, I couldn't be more happy to have spoken to you today, and it must be an ungodly time of day for you there in Vermont, but I'm really, really, really lucky that you took the time to share your thoughts with us today, and you're just the best. Thank you so much for all the work you do in your books. They are freaking brilliant, and I I tell everyone about them. And um, I do have poker tonight, but I don't know if I'll be able to hold on to my four kings and and put them in the muck once I see the flop come because I tend to get carried away.
3: Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I'm really glad we had, we had the chance to have this conversation.
0: You're the best. If you ever do come to Australia, do pop in. I would love to. We live in a lovely part of the city. And, um, come bring the kids and play on the beach. It'll be great. Sounds great. <laughs> that was Maria Konnikova. You can find out more about her, Maria M A R I A K O N N I K O V A dot com. That's where she is. Uh, she's also M Konakova on Twitter, M K O N I K O V A. She's absolutely fantastic. Her books are just brilliant. She has another book. Her first book was called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, which I'm, I'm going to have to get into now because I'm really interested. Uh, she also has her own podcast. It's called The Grift. Uh, so I, I thoroughly recommend checking that out. Um, thank you so much, Maria, for working with me on this show today. Sorry if I'm a bit rambly today, everybody. It's just been that kind of day and my uh, neurons aren't really connecting together when it comes to speech. Uh, lucky I host podcasts and talk on TV for a living. Anyway, um, you're awesome. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on Wednesday with Dad Pod, Thursday with Idol Australians with James Matheson, which is going great guns at the moment, and I'll be back here on Friday, you legends. Go get Maria's books, read up, become Neo in the Matrix, but not to the point where you're seeing things that aren't there. Just see things as they really are. That's all we're here to do. Have a fantastic weekend a week. What is it? It's Monday. Good Lord. Have a fantastic week. You're the best. Until we speak, next, sleep well and dream
4: of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh